And welcome once again to another edition of A Plain Answer here at Redeemer Broadcasting. On the phone line with us today is Bruce Klingner. He specializes in Korean and Japanese affairs as the Senior Research Fellow for Northeast Asia at the Heritage Foundation's Asian Studies Center. Bruce, it's an honor to have you on with us today. Well, thanks for having me. I was reading a little bit about you, and you have 20 years of service at the Central Intelligence Agency and the Defense Intelligence Agency. And for a while, you were the, quite a while, you were the CIA's Deputy Division Chief for Korea. Before that, you were the Chief of CIA's Korea branch. And uh, you were analyzing military developments during a nuclear crisis with North Korea. And today's subject uh, concerns North Korea. Again, uh, last last week, February the 12th, in fact, uh, North Korea launched a Pukuk Sung-2 missile, and uh, it's under the direct uh, leadership of Kim Jong-un. I'm wondering if you can uh, share with our listeners, what is the situation as you perceive it on the ground right now in North Korea? Well, this uh, missile launch was uh, not an ICBM, which many of us had expected. Uh, you know, that would be a missile that would be able to hit the United States. And uh, Kim Jong-un had said on his New Year's Day speech that they were in the late stages of developing that ICBM with a, a nuclear warhead. Uh, and the regime has said they would launch anywhere, anytime. So we'd sort of been expecting that. Uh, so this missile that was fired over the weekend instead was a medium range, but still is actually very significant because uh, it's a new missile uh, on a new launcher. We had not known of it before. What they did was take a submarine-launched ballistic missile that they achieved some success breakthroughs last year, and they've created a land version on it and put it on a new uh, tracked uh, launcher. And the reason it's significant is because it's solid-fueled rather than liquid-fueled. And, and what that means is that it's it's much quicker to uh, to launch because they don't have to go through the 45-minute uh, fueling and oxidizing process. And because it's a mobile uh, missile, it makes it a lot harder for the U.S. or South Korea to identify it, to track it, and if necessary, attack it during a crisis. So, you know, this can uh, scoot and shoot a, a lot uh, quicker. It makes it more survivable, uh, and it makes a, it a, a more dangerous preemptive uh, attack. And we, we think it's likely to have a nuclear warhead on it. Oh, yeah. This uh, sounds very scary uh, to those of us who really don't want to have war with North Korea. I, my dad, in fact, was a, a vet of the Korean War. He didn't have to go over, but he trained for it. And it's um, something uh, to this day, he wears his vet hat. So uh, the American people have had um, kind of a bad uh, intersection with North Korea in the past. So um, how can I put it this way? How crazy is this leader that we're dealing with? Uh, actually, he, he's not crazy. I, I think that's sort of been overdone a lot. Is uh, you know, when, when I was at CIA, we did an analysis of his father, Kim Jong-il, and, yeah. and found him to be stable and rational, obviously a, a brutal dictator. Yeah. Um, but when everyone was saying he was the crazy little guy in the basement with the, the bouffant hair, which people talk about Kim Jong-un being the same descriptor. Mm -hmm. uh, but, you know, he, he's not going to just wake up frothy mouth someday and just push the button, you know, because he's irrational. Um, you know, that said, he, he's clearly very dangerous to South Korea, Japan, and the United States. Uh, they've been engaged in very provocative, very belligerent behavior. Uh, just uh, this earlier this week, uh, he must have ordered the 
assassination of his half-brother uh, in Malaysia with uh, an assassination team. Uh, and North Korea has been engaged in assassinations uh, of either exile or escapees uh, for, for decades. They've, they've done assassinations in South Korea, China, Russia, uh, Burma, and now Malaysia. So uh, clearly a very dangerous regime. Now, uh, in the news, I believe I read that China denounced this missile launch. Um, did they really mean that, or or are they kind of behind this? Well, they're, uh, they, they denounced it, but then the U.N. didn't take any further action, like uh, additional punishment or sanctions. So uh, China has shown itself to be part of the problem rather than part of the solution. They, right. they tend to act like North Korea's lawyer at the U.N. Security Council. They've uh, denounced... Um, you know, or, or refuted evidence of uh, previous North Korean attacks. Uh, they've impeded more meaningful international responses to previous uh, North Korean actions. They, they always water down the, the wording of the resolutions that the U.S. and its allies want, uh, and they turn a blind eye when there's proliferation by North Korea occurring on, on Chinese soil. So, uh, you know, it, it is an impediment. But, you know, that said, it's not that China is controlling North Korea. They they don't like the actions that North Korea is taking, but they are hesitant to put any real pressure on them. Now, um, did this launch take the current administration, granted they're brand new, um, by surprise? Well, uh, yes, but uh, really almost every launch by North Korea or a nuclear test takes any administration by surprise. Mm-hmm. Uh, if, if they do do a launch from a fixed launch stand, as they've done uh, previously for long-range missiles. You know, that we can see by satellite imagery, and, and that takes them a while to, to prepare for, to stack the missile stages, to fuel it up. Uh, and so those are not surprises. But a mobile missile like this, uh, as well as nuclear tests, where you really don't have any you know, indicators uh, that something is about to happen, you know, that always catches us surprised. And, and actually, I was in South Korea last week, and I met with uh, a number of very senior officials, all of them were saying they didn't think North Korea would launch uh, any kind of missile for several months. Mm. Uh, and that's because in South Korea, they have a, a political turmoil right now. Their their president was impeached. She's awaiting a ruling by the Constitutional Court to see if that impeachment is upheld or not, uh, which it likely will be, which means South Korea will have an election probably in May. And so the assessment was that North Korea wouldn't do anything provocative uh, before that election, because what what it tends to do is is help the conservative uh, party or the conservative candidates, which work against North Korea. Sure. So uh, we had thought that you know they they would be quiet as they have been since October uh, when they did the last launch to not you know undermine the liberal or progressive candidates that would be more open to North Korean uh, you know diplomatic approaches. Sure. sure. I just uh, remembered something. Now and then I come across a picture, uh, a nighttime satellite picture, showing the lights that are shining in South Korea and not so many lights in North Korea. Is that is that truly the case? It, it really is. And, and the, the photos become pretty pretty famous. And what it shows is, is sort of brilliant lights at night in China and Japan and South Korea and a, and a black hole in North Korea. Um, and, you know, when I did interviews after the uh, Sony hacking, which North Korea conducted a cyber attack on Sony Studios, um, you know, it, interviewers at the time would say, look, they can't even keep a light bulb going. How could they possibly have done a cyber attack? And actually, U.S. and South Korean intelligence officials will say that North Korea is in the, the top tier of cyber attack capabilities, perhaps uh, the top three countries 
of the world. So North Korea devotes its resources uh, and its priorities to what it wants, either cyber attack capabilities or nuclear missiles, uh, you know, or, uh, you know, other means of attacking its neighbors. So they, they put their money where they want it, yeah. which, is, which is not with its citizens. Yeah. Today we're talking with Bruce Klingner, and he's an expert on the Korean and Japanese affairs, senior research fellow for Northeast Asia at the Heritage Foundation. Now, uh, going forward, um, spoke of our administration, uh, if you were to get their ear and <laughs> try to convince them as to what they need to do next, uh, what would your advice be? Well, there are a number of things. First of all, we have to reassure our allies that we are there for them, uh, that to reassure them of U.S. Uh, commitment and resolve to defend them. Uh, during the campaign, uh, then-candidate Trump uh, made a number of comments which really called into question the uh, the long-standing U.S. Uh, commitment to uphold our treaty alliances and defend our friends overseas. Um, more recently, uh, he's uh, affirmed our commitment. Uh, he's not mentioned the what he was saying before, which is, uh, unless you pay us 100% for the cost of our troops overseas, we're going to remove our troops. Uh, and Secretary of Defense James Mattis was in South Korea and Japan about two weeks ago, did a, a really, really good job of, of reassuring them. So that that's step one, is it, it's a constant process. Uh, we also need to make sure we have sufficient defenses for ourselves and our allies, uh, and that includes deploying a missile defense system called the THAAD, uh, to South Korea. The, both governments have agreed to do it, but uh, we may need to accelerate the deployment. It, it's better than anything South Korea has or will have for decades, and it, it improves the defenses of South Korea as well as all of our troops that are over there, about 28,500. Uh, we also need to increase the funding to our Defense Department. During the Obama administration, there were uh, massive cuts uh, so that it's really impacted our, our, you know, our the military. We have you know, 80% of Marine Corps aviation uh, is can't get off the ground for lack of funding and lack of parts, et cetera. Uh, one in three Air Force planes can't take off uh, because of lack of funding, et cetera. Uh, and we also need to increase the, the sanctions on North Korea. Uh, people think that it's maxed out. They believed when Obama said it's the most heavily sanctioned, the, the most cut-off nation on Earth. And, and that's just not true. It, it was only last year that the U.S. finally cumulatively sanctioned as many North Korean entities as those of Zimbabwe. So we've we've been over-talking and underperforming on our sanctions. Yeah, that sounds very believable. I don't doubt that for one minute. Uh, missile defense, you mentioned that uh, briefly. I think you said the THAAD. What is what is that thing like? What, what does it do? It, it's a mobile system, so you have what's called an X-band radar, which uh, looks towards North Korea to identify any incoming missiles, and then it's got a number of, of launchers uh, that would intercept the missile as it's aiming into South Korea, which would be against either South Korean populace or U.S. military bases there. Um, so it, it would better defend against um, the North Korean missiles than what is there now. So that has kind of a, a bigger envelope, a bigger bubble that it can protect. It can intercept missiles further away and higher up uh, and more effectively than what is there now. Well, that sounds like the right thing to do, and I would imagine that some people would be against that sort of thing. Well, uh, China is against it. They claim that it uh, impedes their strategic interests, i.e. their ability to hit us or South Korea with nuclear weapons. Um, but if you do kind of the math or do the technical uh, assessment, if you 
see the the distance and the the range and the altitude of the the THAAD interceptor as well as the radar, and if you plot out where Chinese missile units are, um, the THAAD can't see, let alone intercept the Chinese missiles, because I mean, it really is designed for North Korean missiles. Yeah, so it's really a defensive sort of a thing. It, exactly, and, and China knows knows this, and the U.S. and South Korea have tried to uh, give briefings to China, and they just refuse because they know the answer. But So it, they're driven by political reasons. They're trying to divide the alliance. They're you know, trying to undermine improving uh, defenses. And you know, what they're, they're threatening South Korea with diplomatic and, and economic and military threats, uh, but then they're not threatening their ally, North Korea, which is the one causing this whole situation. Yeah. So that is a response to North Korea's offensive actions, uh, but China is more willing to be obnoxious to South Korea than to North Korea. Yeah. Does China continue to provide goods and weapons and that sort of thing to the North? Uh, not so much weapons. It's mm-hmm. uh, They are North Korea's largest trading partner, uh, and the U.S. has tried to get them to uh, reduce their economic engagement. Um, and, and China has not fully implemented uh, the required U.N. security sanctions, uh, so that ha- that has been a problem. So uh, we're trying to get China to increase its compliance. But there's, there are things the U.S. can do unilaterally. Um, we can really influence the Chinese banks and businesses that are engaging with North Korea uh, to stop doing so. And uh, when people say, well, the Chinese government won't go along with sanctions, well, we can, in essence, target those Chinese banks and businesses because the way that targeted financial measures works is that the, the majority of all international financial transactions are denominated in dollars. And what that means is they actually have to go through, those transactions have to go through a U.S. government-regulated bank in the United States. So if you send money from London to Paris, it actually goes through New York. So that gives us tremendous leverage. So these Chinese banks and businesses would actually have what's called correspondent accounts in the United States, uh, and we can seize and freeze those assets, we can impose fines, or we can publicly declare that those companies um, are unable to access the U.S. financial system, which is really kind of the kiss of death for for businesses. So, And, and anyone else would not want to deal with them. And we've tried that in the past, and it worked, and then we, we backed away from it. I like that approach of uh, nonviolent means. Um, the last thing we want to do is get into some kind of a war, but uh, but a just war is, is another thing altogether. But um, if, if we can avoid it and, and put pressure like this on, on a nation, then that seems like a, a wise thing to do. Right. And actually, you know, another thing that has a uh, topic that's come up a lot is preemption. Um, a lot of people say, you know, if they test fire a missile, we should intercept it or we should take it out on the ground. And, and I, I think instead we should save preemption for when we have, uh, you know, credible intelligence of an imminent North Korean attack. So so certainly if North Korea launches attack against the U.S. or its allies, you know, we, we respond, uh, you know, exponentially to that. Uh, or if we, you know, have evidence that they are about to launch an attack, then that's a very difficult decision, but a necessary one for a president. But, you know, if, if they're just doing a single missile launch that'll just splash into the Pacific, uh, really in most cases we can't shoot it down because it's outside of you know, the envelope of our capabilities. I mean, we're not, we don't have systems that can defend the entire Pacific Ocean. I mean, we should. Yeah. Um, 
you know, and if you were to intercept it, it, it allows China to kind of redirect uh, international anger away from North Korea's violation of the resolutions towards the U.S., and they would depict it as a, you know, a hostile U.S. act of war. Uh, and I think it's just needlessly uh, provocative. And the same with, you know, taking out a missile on the launch stand. It's you're conducting an attack uh, on the ground, uh, sort of unnecessarily so, and you, you risk provoking what could end up being an all-out war with a nuclear power on the Korean Peninsula. You know, I wanted to go back and ask you just a little bit more about preparedness. Um, here in the Northeast, uh, we just came through uh, pretty severe storms, down trees, many, many people without power. And uh, those who had thought, well, maybe someday I'll get a generator. When the storm hits, it hits fast and furious, and all of a sudden you're out and people are saying, oh, if only I had invested in a generator. Well, just imagine if that was some kind of a, a nuclear launch, how you would pine over the fact that if only I had a defense system that could have detected this thing, take it out, um, you mentioned that 80% of the Marine Corps, um, they're in bad shape uh, and not able to get off the ground. Can you talk to us a little bit more about that and why it's appropriate to have a strong defensive posture? Right. It's uh, the, the military, you know, it's it's like, you know, having a policeman walk the beat in, in, in your neighborhood. You, you hope that they have a quiet shift. Uh, you hope that they're you know, not called into action. You hope you don't have to send in a SWAT team to some crisis in a neighborhood. Similarly with the military, I mean, their main role is to try to prevent crises. So, you know, by having them on station, by having them fully capable, uh, it's deterrence. You're, you're trying to prevent uh, a crisis. You're trying to prevent uh, intimidation of yourself or your allies. But to do that, you need to have a, a strong and robust military uh, that's capable of responding if, if necessary. So, unfortunately, the um, you know the, the degradation of the capabilities occurred uh, during the last several years when we underfunded uh, the military. So, you know, of uh, for example, uh, the, the army and including the reserves and the national guard has 58 uh, brigades, and right now only uh, three of those are considered ready for combat. Uh, wow. The um, the the Marine Corps has too few amphibious ships. The 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 Marines have said they need 54 amphibious ships. We have 28. Um, the Air Force has a shortfall of 700 pilots. Uh, the Navy has stated its requirements are for 355 ships, and we have 274. So, uh, and the and the list unfortunately goes on and on and on. So, you know, for the the men and women in the military, and and my son right now is a Marine. He's stationed in uh, Afghanistan. You know, and he's reliant on having sufficient forces to defend himself if he has to go into action, uh, as all the men and women in the military. So, you know, I think it, it uh, you know, is re- responsibility of us to provide, you know, the people who put it on the line for the, our country uh, to give them the resources that they need. Yeah. I sit here thinking, you know, you can't have everything. Uh, we've got some people who are on the public dole that probably shouldn't be. Tremendous amount of money being spent on social programs. And yet um, our ability to defend ourselves, which is a fundamental uh, role of government, in my view, to protect its people, is uh, greatly diminished. And um, if you were to cast down a nation, what better way to do it than through uh, chipping away at their military and causing them to not be able to defend themselves? Right. Um, so as people just living our daily lives, um, is there any advice you would have us have as uh, citizens as we look at this news and 
kind of say, oh, no, here we go again. North Korea launched a missile. How should we respond just practically on the ground going into the grocery store each day, you know, caring for our kids, et cetera? Well, I, th- I think it, it really is, uh, I mean, you don't have to change your lifestyle, but, you know, to the degree possible, you know, to uh, let your representative or your senator know that uh, you support a strong military to defend ourselves, our way of life, our country, uh, and that, uh, you know, it, it's past time for the U.S. to really fully enforce its laws by fully implementing uh, the sanctions that are not only for the U.N. resolutions, but our, by our own laws. So mm. you know, one of the problems with the Obama administration was it, it you know, turned a blind eye uh, or did what I call timid incrementalism. It, it would kind of you know, sanction a few North Korean or Chinese entities after each provocation, uh, and, but it had a drawer full of, of additional entities, but you know, they were holding back until the next provocation. It's, mm. it's kind of like you know, if you know there are 20 bank robbers in the city, and you arrest one at a time, and then if someone robs another bank, you arrest one more, even though you know that you know there's you have the evidence on the other. So yeah, yeah. What about um, the the advisors and the administration currently? Um, are we seeing a strong or weak administration develop? Um, well, we really still have a, a lot of uh, you know open or empty slots. Uh, you know, any administration. You know, they have really like 4,000 slots, the political appointees that need to be filled. And, and that always takes, you know, several months, six months or so, perhaps. Um, you know, unfortunately, right now we have, it seems like a slow pace of of getting people into office. Uh, the deputy secretary levels uh, haven't even been named, let alone confirmed. And then now we have the, the turmoil with the uh, National Security Advisor, General Flynn, has had to resign over sort of a, a crisis uh, or a scandal involving, you know, whatever he may have said with uh, with Russians. So, um, you know, the NSC is apparently in a bit of a turmoil because they, they don't know who their new leader will be. Yeah. Well, speaking of Russia, I know you're an expert on, on the Asian and Japanese Korea. Um, any comments about Russia? Um, you know, we, we really have to recognize they're a, a very dangerous threat, uh, Perhaps when the Soviet Union collapsed, people sort of thought the the threat was gone. Uh, but certainly under Vladimir Putin, I mean, he's he's really a throwback to the Soviet Union or the imperialist uh, Russian times. Uh, clearly, Russia was behind cyber attacks uh, on the U.S. government trying to influence the U.S. election. So, uh, you know, we we you know can't see them as some you know benign threat or or benign partner. So. You know, I, I think the last several administrations have, have come in with perhaps an overly rosy view of Russia and our ability to influence them. And, you know, Secretary of State Hillary Clinton at the time gave uh, her Russian counterpart a reset button, you know, hoping to improve relations that uh, she saw deteriorated under George Bush. Well, by the end of the Obama term, we saw that, you know, Russia had invaded uh, Crimea, part of Ukraine, and uh, you know, was behind these cyber uh, cyber attacks. So it sounds like uh, we should respect this man, Vladimir Putin, but don't trust him. Exactly. Well, yeah. respect in the sense of you respect a, a strong adversary. You, you, you don't. Uh, you don't let your guard down. You bet. Well, this is very interesting. Um, Bruce Klingner is my guest today. He works for the Heritage Foundation, part of the Asian Studies Center. He spent a lot of time in the Central Intelligence Agency and Defense Intelligence Agency. In the last two minutes remaining, uh, Bruce, if someone would like to read more and learn 
and to better um, better be informed. Uh, do you have any resources you could direct our listeners to? Yeah, they they can go to heritage.org. That's our our main website, and they can search certainly on my name, uh, you know, Bruce Klingner, B R U C E K L I N G N E R for any information on Korea and Japan. Uh, but you can also go to the website and look at uh, regions of the world as as well as uh, domestic issues that they might be interested in. You know, click on the website, and, and that'll bring you to the analysis of uh, you know all the other analysts we have here at Heritage. If I may say, I've been so very impressed with the Heritage Foundation. Uh, I subscribe to the Daily Signal, and that comes every day in my mailbox, and I can catch up on some of the latest stuff. And uh, you folks are doing a wonderful job, and uh, it's a wonderful organization to support. I would encourage our listeners to consider uh, supporting you guys as well. Uh, Bruce Klingner, thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, well, thank you for having me. And dear listener, please join us next week for another edition of A Plain Answer.